This is Dollars and Change, a podcast about the intersection of business and social impact. Brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. Welcome to Dollars and Change. I'm Catherine Klein, the Vice Dean for Social Impact at the Wharton School, and I am delighted today to be talking with Professor Alex Edmonds. Alex is a professor of finance at the London Business School. He's written extensively about responsible business and has a new book just out called Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Alex, welcome to our podcast. Thanks very much, Catherine. It's great to be on the show. Wonderful to talk with you. Um, let's just jump right in and focus on the title of your book. Uh, I know you've given a lot of thought to this title, and it is, again, Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. So why grow the pie, and what's the difference in your mind between a grow the pie mentality versus a split the pie mentality? Certainly. So the book is about responsible business. And to many CEOs, historically, they viewed responsibility as an optional extra or a luxury. So that's something that you put in a corporate social responsibility department. But it's not really central to the business. Why? Because they have what you refer to as the pie splitting mentality. This is the idea that the value that a company creates is given by a fixed pie. So anything that a company gives to stakeholders in the form of, let's say, employee wages or reducing prices to customers or stewarding the environment better, that's at the expense of profits. So to the extent to which companies care about society, they might only do some public relations initiatives rather than actually integrating it into the business. And they often think about purpose and profit being in conflict with each other. So why why is the book called Grow the Pie? And why is the subtitle about purpose and profit is that it suggests that actually if companies deliver value to stakeholders, then in the long term, they actually do benefit their investors. For example, if you treat workers better and train them and invest in them, yes, this might cost you more in the short term. But in the long term, they become more motivated and more productive and therefore investors benefit. So when you serve society and and run the business with with a purpose, you're not donating slices of the pie to society and making shareholders work worse off. You're growing the pie and therefore it's not only stakeholders that benefit, but also shareholders. Got it. So um, let me break that down and explore some of those ideas a little bit more. Um, One thing I want to say is my understanding from what you've written is that you are not um, concerned only about CEOs or even investors who have a pie-splitting mentality, you see this pie-splitting mentality among other groups, and you think it's misguided. So yeah, that's who, a really who else point. is getting this wrong? Yeah, so, so people who, who advocate for the reform of, of business, so these may be policymakers or, in fact, other academics, who I would agree with them that business needs to serve wider society, but I will disagree with them as to how to get there. So they practice the pie-splitting mentality from the other angle. So their their belief is that if we want to serve society better, then we need to restrict what goes to investors. That might be through heavy restrictions on, say, CEO pay or or profits and so forth. And I think that's problematic for for at least two reasons. So the first is if the reform on, on business is something that makes business worse off, the only way that you can achieve that is through regulation. 
And I do believe there is a rule for regulation, but there's a limit to what you can achieve with it because it only leads to compliance, not commitment. Let's say you could have a minimum wage regulation and you can abide by that, but that doesn't mean that you're going to give meaningful work and training opportunities. For example, Ford famously paid his workers $5 a day. That was a lot back in the 1920s, but didn't give people the opportunities for skills development. And I think the second limitation is when we think about the pie being split between society, us, and investors, them, we often think that investors are the enemy. But actually, investors are us. So they involve pension schemes, saving for their retirees and so forth. So any reform of business needs to take investors seriously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the things we'll be talking about in a, a term you've used uh, even uh, already in this podcast is stakeholders. Who do we mean by stakeholders? So a stakeholder is any constituency which is affected by the company's presence. So this would involve employees. And importantly, how they're affected is not just through an economic relationship, which uh, traditional, say, economic theorists might focus on, which is just wages. But what they might also care about is some intangible factors such as training and, and development and meaningful work and camaraderie and, and a purpose. But they also could in include customers or the environment taxpayers, communities and suppliers, and those are typically seen as the stakeholders of a, of a business. And so if you look at, say, the business roundtable statement um, last August, which a number of CEOs signed, they were arguing that their business had a responsibility to not only shareholders, but also those stakeholders. Got it. And, and you um, build your arguments on increasing evidence uh, so this is you know, academic evidence and strong empirical research, you say, that when companies invest in stakeholders, when they do, when they take seriously an obligation and responsibility to benefit stakeholders, their long term uh, profits and financial performance uh, improves. So let's dig into that that research evidence uh, at least a little bit. Um, sure. What's the evidence? Uh, you know, and tell us about your research on employee satisfaction. You find that uh, companies that, that treat their employees better, have more satisfied workers, seem to perform better. Certainly. So um, my own work looks at employee satisfaction. Now, that's only one stakeholder. So we can talk about other stakeholder measures later. But why I focused on employees is for a couple of reasons. So one is I had some really good data. And so this was the list of the 100 best companies to work for in America. Why was that list so useful? Uh, number one, it was available from 1984. So I had a long time series. So responsible business, that's a reasonably new thing. So many data sets are only available for a few years. And so you might not have the same power. And another reason why it was a good data is it looks not only at quantitative factors, like pay and benefits, but it also looks at qualitative factors such as pride in your job and camaraderie with your colleagues. And this gets around the idea that you could have Henry Ford who pays your work as well. But I think the second reason why I looked at employees is this concept of materiality, is that employees are important in virtually every firm, whereas, let's say, in measures of environmental impact, that might be relevant, say, if you're a mining company or an energy firm, but not so much if you're a financial institution. So what I wanted to do was to link um, employee satisfaction to financial performance. But the big problem here is, is causality. And so there have been a lot of papers in the management and strategy field which had tried to correlate 
social performance with financial performance. And there were some famous meta-analyses, uh, one by uh, Margolis and Walsh, which show that on average, uh, these um, relationships were, were positive. But you don't know. Is it social value that causes better performance? Where by social value, you mean employee satisfaction in this case? Yes. So in, in, from, in my case, employee satisfaction, but the meta-analyses looked at other dimensions as well. Um, or is it financial performance that causes social performance, including employee satisfaction? Because one might think that once the company is doing better, then it can start treating its work as well. Or maybe there's a third variable that, that, that um, drives both. Maybe you have an inspired CEO and she both improves firm performance, but she also starts thinking about her employees. So this is why uh, I came to this debate as a finance professor. So most of the papers written were in management and strategy, and they would typically use, say, accounting profits or valuation ratios. So in finance, um, what we look at is, is stock returns. And so that has a number of advantages. So why? The stock return is the change in the stock price between now and in the future. Now, there's a lot of evidence that the current stock price does take into account tangible measures of performance, such as profitability. So if indeed we thought there was reverse causality, so that employee satisfaction was the result of good performance, then that good performance would already be in the stock price. Mm -hmm. It's already high today, so it, sh it shouldn't outperform going forwards. And obviously, yes, maybe markets are not efficient, but with our ways of controlling for, say, recent performance known as momentum, there's also ways of adjusting for risk and, and, and so forth. So th there's further sort of machinery that I can throw at it. But essentially, by looking at the stock price, um, the stock price change that addresses some reverse causality issues. Now, it doesn't get around the fact that maybe, well, it's management quality, which is driving this. And so I do some further tests. And one thing that I look at it, which is interesting, is I look at not just the future stock performance, but the future earnings profitability of the company. And importantly, to get around reverse causality, every three months in the US, um, companies report their earnings. But before they do so, there are equity analysts like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley trying to forecast what the profits will be. And they do take into account things such as management quality and past performance. But what I found was that these companies were systematically beating the analyst expectations, suggesting there was something about these companies which the market just wasn't getting. And so that moves it closer towards causality. Now, there's still a few other things which you can't rule out. And I, I can talk about some other papers shortly, which get even closer to causality than me. But that's sort of the idea behind at least my paper. That's great. Uh, and I would say as a management professor, I'm, I'm not surprised uh, uh, by these findings, but, but pleased to have other colleagues and other disciplines adding to, to the evidence. And I would say that the, um, the causal mechanism we expect, right, is that when you're a better, when your company is a good place to work, when your company gives people purpose and meaning and pay, uh, you attract better workers, you keep them. Uh, and you get, you know, not surprisingly, better better performance. Let's talk about the evidence that you are seeing that goes beyond employee satisfaction. You know, mm -hmm. turning to other stakeholders, other dimensions. What are you seeing that meets the kind of standards and rigor of research that you've been talking about that make you a finance professor say we ought to take this more seriously? There is clear evidence of growing the pie, that this is not just good for stakeholders, it's good for long-term business. 
Certainly. And I think it it is really important to be sceptical and discerning about the evidence. Why? Because there is a lot of confirmation bias. We would like to believe that companies that do good do better. So um, we might just jump on evidence, even if it's not fully um, robust. So there is evidence looking at other stakeholders, such as environmental performance. But the problem with that is there's probably loads of measures available of environmental performance. You might be able to find one which happens to outperform. So I, I'm going to now talk about a different study, which was done by a strategy scholar known as, um, she's called Caroline Flammer. And um, what she looks at is what happens when shareholders put in a proposal um, to improve um, the stakeholder orientation of a company. So this might be, for example, to have a specific proposal on um, vetting the human rights uh, policies of, of, of your suppliers and so on. Now, the problem here is, again, the correlation versus causation one, because you might think if indeed a shareholder proposal leads to better performance, well, it could be the shareholder itself was behind that proposal. And that large active shareholder, let's say it's the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, they are what's causing the outperformance rather than the proposal in itself. So what she does is what's known as a regression discontinuity, where she looks at proposals which pass with 51% of the vote right. versus ones that fail with 49% of the vote. And the idea here is that whether you're 49 or 51, is essentially random. It's not caused by a large investor like the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund because they would have increased the voting support to, say, 80%. And so by looking at those close call proposals, ones that just succeed versus ones that just fail, she finds that the ones that just succeed indeed improve stock returns, which is surprising, right? Because you, you might think, well, those proposals are to improve stakeholder value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But actually, interestingly, they also improve shareholder value as well, which is, again, the idea that the pie is growing rather than being split in favour of, of stakeholders. Great. And that work would focus particularly on environmental sustainability in that case. Is that correct? Or are they broad? No, it's a broader set of initiatives, yeah. So what she looked at is any um, so ES proposal. So not not the G, um, but the environmental and social, where the social will involve things such as your policies with your suppliers and your workers, um, gender diversity, um, uh, discrimination on sexual orientation and so forth. But not the governance, but there was a separate study done on the governance um, by some authors at LSE and INSEAD, which is in the Journal of Finance. Got it. So let me turn to a different dimension that we may think of when we're thinking about growing the pie, when we may think about of stakeholders. But I would love to hear you talk about CEO pay. So certainly in arguments that, that you might characterize more as in the pie splitting mentality, the view would be, wow, CEOs are overpaid and that, you know, the CEO pay has grown so dramatically over the last four or five decades Again, people who may be advocating responsible business are saying, wow, CEO pay is out of control. What's your view on this? Is CEO pay out of control when we think about responsible business? Should we see lower CEO pay? What should we see? Yeah, so I think, again, what my view is, is I'd say, well, let's look at the evidence and see what the evidence tries to, seems to suggest. And so the idea that CEO pay is too high where does the too high come from? Well, the idea is that um, the ratio of CEO pay to worker pay is excessive. And the idea is that, well, if the CEO wasn't so greedy, then you could just redistribute her pay to everybody else. But again, I think this is based on the pie splitting mentality, the idea that a CEO's pay 
is at the expense of everybody else. When if you look at, say, Bob Iger at Disney, last year he was in um, controversy because he'd earned $66 million. But that wasn't necessarily at the expense of society. Actually, the Disney's value had gone up by 600% over his tenure. And we don't just care about shareholder value, we care about society. 70,000 jobs had been created. But again, as academics, we don't just look at one anecdote. Um, what's interesting is, is the evidence. And, and going back to the idea of confirmation bias, is that this evidence I've seen to be hugely misrepresented. So a few years ago, I was invited to testify in the UK House of Commons. There was an inquiry into executive pay. And the witness before me, the trade union, quoted evidence showing that the higher the ratio of CEO pay to worker pay, the lower firm performance was, perhaps because employees got demotivated that this company was unfair. Interestingly, what they quoted was a half-finished working paper, mm. which hadn't yet gone through the peer-reviewed process. Now, the peer-reviewed published paper was actually already out and found completely the opposite result. So after tightening up their methodology, they found the opposite. And I think this is really instructive because... Uh, I guess we shouldn't be saying this as professors, but beware the phrase research shows that because yeah, research right. can show whatever you want it to show. And uh, what's important is, and I know you've written about this a lot, Catherine, is the importance of the rigour of the evidence, because that just uh, it tries to ensure that, that uh, the findings are some that you can rely on. So if, if, the, if the level of pay or the ratio of the pay is, is not so important, what does matter? Well, it's the horizon of pay. So whether it's tied to the short term or the long term. Um, so going back to Carolina Flammer, in another paper she wrote with uh, Tima Bansal, her co-author, she used the same regression discontinuity methodology to show that when companies implement long term pay, that not only causes long term profitability to go up, but also companies become more innovative. And also employees um, do better in terms of MSCI ESG ratings. So again, this suggests that the best way to improve how a company treats workers is not by reducing the CEO's pay and redistributing it. But when the CEO thinks about the long term, then she knows that it's more important for her to invest in, in employees because they are material to the long term success of a company. And, and what is long term? Do we know what long term is? No, we don't. So, so what she looked at in the study was a pay proposals to implement long term pay. And sometimes it's five years, sometimes it's seven. But you're talking about exactly the right dimensions. So when boards or, or comp committees discuss pay, rather than looking at the ratio, they should discuss what's the correct um, period in terms of long term. So in some cases, you might want to be longer term. Why? Because the CEO's actions have a longer term effect, let's say pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. versus retail. Or in other cases, maybe the economic cycle is so long, you want the um, horizon to be long enough that the CEO doesn't cash out in a windfall. For example, Exxon, there the CEO has to hold, hold um, half of his shares for 10 years because of the length of, of an oil price cycle. But these are the, the things that we should be talking about, not ratios. So, Alex, you wrote the book, Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit Before the Coronavirus. And uh, this is obviously a, a very different context, a, a, a shocking and worldwide crisis. What are the lessons that you think you've learned about great companies that are particularly relevant and helpful for us to pay attention to in the context of the coronavirus? I think it's how responsibility involves pie growing as well as pie splitting. So why do I say that? So there have been some great responses to the crisis. 
which I would call pie splitting, i.e. companies and investors are bearing a lot of the burden to help society. So this might be some CEOs working for zero, like the CEOs of Boeing and, and, um, and uh, United, or it might be companies giving free products. So you have, say, Unilever giving 100 million euros of, of food and sanitizer, or companies continuing to pay their workers, let's say, win resorts, even though the hotels are closed down. But why I think the importance of pie growing is critical is that what if you can't split the pie? You don't have pie to give. You don't have 100 million euros lying around if you're a small company or you're not in a relevant industry like food and sanitizer. So what pie growing is about is about being innovative, thinking about, well, what can I do to actively create value for society? You might be, let's say, Ford, the car company which is now redeploying your um, airbag material to make hospital masks and gowns. It could be you're the New England Patriots, right? How can they help right, with, with football and replica merchandise? Well, what they have is a plane and they're using that plane to, um, to um, fly 1.2 million N95 masks. Or um, you might be a small business with, with no money. So um, one is called Barry's Boot Camp, which is a, a gym which I'm a, a customer of in the UK, but there's many resorts around um, um, the US. And um, one thing which they are offering is free online fitness classes, which is important for people locked down. Now, you might think, well, that's not hugely innovative that a fitness company is providing fitness classes. But here's the thing which I think is really interesting. Because what they have is desk staff, people who work at the reception. So how can they help out in the crisis? What it turns out is that many of them are actors. But in their, um, because acting is, is a volatile profession, they take this desk job um, in their spare time. And as a result, they've got great skills in entertaining. How does that help in the crisis? Well, what we have is a lot of working parents with their children at home. And so what they're doing is offering, say, Zoom storytelling to take um, kids off an hour after their working parents. And so that makes a big difference. So, again, it's not just about sort of donating money, which is really important. And again, I want to I can never underestimate the companies that have done that have made great contributions. But the whole idea of growing the pie means that all companies can contribute, even if you're in an unrelated industry and even if you don't have um, uh, millions of dollars to give just by thinking innovatively as to what you, how you can use what's in your hand to serve wider society. Great. Alex, to wrap up this podcast, I want to ask you two questions. One about the research evidence and the second and my and final question will be about company purpose. But let's let's talk first about the research evidence. You've you've really uh, emphasized where where rigorous academic research can be helpful and um, and convincing regarding the increasing evidence on growing the pie. What additional research would you like to see? Where do you hope research goes? What topics? You know, what is it we still need to to learn in the next five or ten years? And maybe just two or three topics where it's like, you know, the the evidence is not as strong as it should be. You'd really like to see more studies on these areas. Yeah, so I think um, what's more, what's particularly important is measures of the input rather than the output. So what I've talked about are some output measures. So I've looked at measures of employee satisfaction or I've looked at, say, um, shareholder proposals. But I, I, we haven't sort of measured purpose in that are companies which are purposeful um, or um, 
are, are they performing better in the long term? Because that's something which is really tricky to do. So there is some work by uh, George Serafim and, and, and co-authors which uses a subset of the measures of the best company of the best company survey. So that's linked to purpose, but I think it's more employee perceptions of mm -hmm. management than actual true purpose. So if there was a way of trying to sort of discern purpose, maybe this might be through through textual analysis of some um, annual reports or sustainability reports. Or some people have said what's really important is, is on the in, in the boardroom. How do we know whether a board is actually being effective, whether a board is actually um, grounding decisions in purpose? Now, again, there's uh, lots of difficulty there because do we actually have data on, on, on this? But I think this is really a field where a lot of data entrepreneurship would really help to get at the inner workings of the firm. Me as a finance person, I typically look at external measures. I was really lucky that the best company survey was an external measure, which is freely available. But I think we're looking at the internal workings and the input measures would really help. Yeah, interesting. The, uh, I mean, your, your comments on purpose are interesting. I know there is uh, new research going on, uh, looking at some of the companies that have signed on to the business roundtable statement. And you know, seeking to understand, are these companies serious about purpose or are they signing on to the statements in, because it makes them look good? You know, what's the, the, the impact washing that, that some folks are, are concerned about? And, I, and I, I would say my understanding is the evidence is, uh, is still out. You know, the, the jury is still out. The evidence is accumulating. We have to be careful about companies signing on to this purpose platform uh, or purpose rhetoric and not really fulfilling it. With that comment and with what you've said about purpose, what is your advice, and let's make this the final question, what would be your advice to companies or whether it's to the students we teach, to employees, about what kind of purpose statements are meaningful in companies? What, you know, if a company says, wow, I'm really struck by this, this, this whole idea of purpose, my employees seem to care about it, I care about purpose, what should they be doing to articulate purpose effectively? What does a, a, a strong purpose statement look like? I think a strong purpose statement is one that is targeted and focused. And I think that's important because people often misunderstand the word purpose. So purposeful is often seen as a synonym for altruistic. So a purposeful company is one that serves wider society. But actually, let's look at the etymology of the word purpose. Right, a purposeful meeting is a targeted and focused meeting with some objectives. If I do something on purpose, I'm doing something deliberately. So I think um, when you mentioned citizens, Catherine, I think that's that's really uh, important because if we think about the analogy to a citizen's purpose, a citizen might say, "My purpose in life is to be a great lawyer or a great teacher or a great doctor." It wouldn't be all of those things. You'd focus on one of them. And certainly for a company, there are some companies with purpose statements which say something like. Our purpose is to serve um, society, which involves shareholders, employees, the environment, uh, customers and so on. But that's difficult because in reality, there will be some trade-offs. Let's say you're an energy company. You're thinking, do I shut down a polluting plant? Well, that's going to help the environment, but hurt workers. So a purpose statement, which includes every stakeholder, is not going to provide guidance for those decisions. So I would say for a company to have a purpose statement, which is meaningful, it has to be focused. What it emits is often as telling as what it includes. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for chatting with us on Dollars and Change. It's been a really a fascinating. And, and as an academic, I love speaking with an, a fellow academic who is also in the business of 
you know, translating important research findings for practice and for purpose. Thank you so much for being with us, Alex. Thanks very much, Catherine. It's great to be on the show. Dollars and Change is brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. To learn more, visit us at socialimpact.wharton.upenn.edu.